everybody. Good afternoon. I would just like to welcome you. This is, I think, day, where are we, Wednesday, four of tackling the unspoken issues. And I am so delighted that Rob has come to join us today. Rob works as a, a consultant psychiatrist up in Edinburgh um, and has just arrived here this morning and is here to speak to us both today and tomorrow. Um, he has, with uh, a vicar called Will Vanderhart, they started the Mind and Soul. Dot com, which I think many of you may know about, and if not, I would really encourage you to have a look. It's an incredible resource, full of interesting articles, uh, forum for discussion um, about all the issues that actually a lot of us are dealing with on a very regular basis. Um, and Rob has um, written, actually with Will, the, the Worry Book, which is what he's going to be speaking on today. And this is available in the bookshop, uh, sort of to the right-hand side of the till. There is a stack of them there. Um, but with great pleasure, I just want to thank Rob for coming and just pray that, um, just quickly pray now, Lord, thank you for this morning, this afternoon. Thank you for all the people that have come. And Father, I just pray that you will be with us um, this afternoon as we uh, listen to Rob speaking, Lord, with a subject that is very close to all of our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you very, Claire. That's great. Thank you. It's great to be at the wonderful Golden Sands, isn't it? And um, there's so many cheap gags I could do, but those of you who were worried that the sun wasn't going to come, it is here today. Um, Thank you for avoiding the promise of the beach. Um, I'm told it's going to improve as the day goes on and then tomorrow. So we get up there and um, men's barbecue tonight, I think, isn't it? There's a few things going on. So it's great to be here on the beach. And um, thank you so much for coming today. What what I'm going to do, I'm going to be talking... Partly from this screen, you don't need to see the, see the screen, but if you want to take notes, that's great. As always, it does sound slightly cheesy, but it is all in the book and, and much, much more. And I guess, you know, one take home from message, message about worry is that it requires a structured approach in that it is something which has wormed its way in and it needs a bit of structure, a little bit of work to get itself out. So I think from that point of view, while it's fantastic to come along and listen to an hour on worry, this really is just to sort of talk about what worry is, where its place is in society, where its place is in the church. But if if you personally are, are struggling with worry or if you know someone who is struggling with worry, and I'm, I'm guessing that's probably going to be about 90% of the audience here today, um, you probably want to be sitting down and working through something that's a little bit more structured um, than even listening to this CD. So, so please do get hold of some of the material. Um, Mary Claire very kindly mentioned the Mind and Soul website. It's mindandsoul.info, and it, it's, on the, it's on the bottom there, but there is lots on that, and there's also a dedicated website to support the book with loads more downloads, audio from talks such as this, and that kind of thing. Um, and you've got some flyers in your hand there, uh, which tell you a little bit, little bit more about it. Uh, very gracious recommendation by, 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 by Nikki as well there. So... Um, just a little bit about Mind and Soul, how it sort of started. Um, oh, that's going to work. It may not, may not appear on a different computer. But, but Mind and Soul is a sort of national network which started really with just a bunch of people who are passionate about Christianity and um, mental health issues in the church. And that, that covers everything through from counseling, emotions, and right through the sort of serious mental health problems, schizophrenia, dementia, that kind of stuff. And one of the things that we've been really privileged to do is to do some sort of 
higher profile events like this to really put sort of mental health issues on the map very much, run some, some big conferences. We did a conference down at HTB, the Beautiful Mind Conference, just over a year ago, and you can get a lot of the audio um, from that, from the HTB bookshop as well. So, so we're really trying to sort of put this issue on, on the map in the mainstream churches in the UK and also sort of wake up the NHS to the role of spirituality and the massive resources and desire and networks that churches have got to help people who struggle with their emotional health problems. So on the website you will find lots of blogs, articles, audio, etc, etc, lots of stuff on there, about three or 400 articles, active forums, comments, podcasts, you name it, it's, it, it's all kind of there. So Please do have a squint at that later. But we're talking about tackling some of the unspoken issues. And I guess one of the reasons why worry is on here is that if I looked at you as a group, generally speaking, I wouldn't know that you worried or if you did worry. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm sort of assuming, I'm, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands and who's in the audience because I'm sort of assuming that many of you, this is, this is quite a personal or pertinent area, but I wouldn't know. This could be any, any seminar that's going on. It's not, you know, some mental health problems are, are more obvious. Perhaps, you know, severe dementia or, or severe schizophrenia are more obvious. But things like worry, things like eating disorders, like Ariana Walker talked about a bit earlier in the week, um, things like some of the sort of sexual difficulties that were talked about yesterday. These things are by and large invisible, so it's really important that we tackle them and actually give them a voice. You know, when was the last time you, you heard a sermon on, on worry, for example? Now, I know that, that Nicky Gumbel preached one when he was covering Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, um, a, a year or so ago at HTB. It's the first time I've actually heard a sermon on, on worry, particularly as a topic. And one reason for doing that is when you read Matthew 5 and you look at Jesus' teaching... There's a whole bunch of, of sort of stuff in there which, you know, Jesus starts off by saying, don't worry, which is not, you know, it's a bit like saying, try not to worry about it. It's the most useless advice in the world. If you're someone who worries, you know, being told to try not to worry or stop it is, is not particularly, so pull yourself together, you know, pull yourself up by your own bootstrap, that kind of thing, is not helpful advice when, when you're struggling with a problem. So is that what Jesus means? It's an often quoted verse, but we want to have a little bit of time looking at Matthew 5 today. Um, and also, most importantly, the thing I do want to say to you is there are answers out there that do work. So we're going to cover a little bit about how to worry less. Some of that's going to come from Jesus' teaching. Some of that's going to come from sort of the very latest psychological techniques. Um, and one of the things that Minosol really tries to do is bring together good Bible teaching, good theology with good psychology as well. Um, but I do want to keep this a little bit interactive, partly because I think you will fall asleep, which is a good antidote to worry, but it's only short-term solution. Um, <laughs> So you will fall asleep if you listen to me for an hour or so. So what I'd like you to do is you could do whatever size groups you want, your adults. I'm not going to say threes because you always do fours and fives. But get into a small group and just think a little bit. And I'm just going to ask just people to sort of shout out in a couple of minutes' time, what do you want from today? What, what do you want from a seminar on worry? And I'll try and make sure we cover that. And if we're not going to cover it, I'll, I'll try and give a quick response. So just a couple of minutes, just with the person next to you, you might want to say, hi, I'm in Maple Rise. That's on the correct side of the street. Okay, so over here, what, what kinds of things do you want from a worry seminar over this side of the room? Just stand up and shout it out. What is CBT and how it connects with faith? CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, we'll cover that. Yep. Anything else? Yep. 
Right, yeah. So, so worry is part of being human. Good point. I'm worried about the bus running me over, therefore I don't walk across the road with my eyes shut. Good, fair point. Okay, yeah. Anything in the middle that you want to know about? Just stand up and shout it out. Yeah. Yeah, so inviting God into it, how to pray, when to pray, that kind of thing. Yeah, I'll, I'll try and cover that. And I think just a quick thing, just while I remember, I think, you know, the, the general thing is, you know, a vague prayer please God help me with my worry, probably is what we want to stay away from. Because I think worry is compounded by vagueness. And I think really trying to be quite specific, uh, Lord, help me with this thought in this particular situation. So I think, you know, the, the, the more specific you can be, the better. And people who worry are often worried about making specific prayers in case it doesn't work out. But actually, that's exactly what you need to do. So, so invite God in a specific manner. And, and with others will be a general response to that. Over this side, just stand up and shout something out. Good. So how to deal with Mori more effectively. And someone at the back? Right. Yes. 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 Uh, worry is self-perpetuating. You know, worry continues because um, people think it works and it feels like work. You know, you have a jolly good worry. It feels like you've done something. And I, I think it does, you know, and the, the, it is self-perpetuating. You know, humans do things because it seems to have a function. The key word there is seems. Um, so, yeah, definitely. Yeah, at the back. Definitely, definitely. So, yeah, you know, I mean, there's worriers and non-worriers, aren't there? Um, and some people don't worry. And I think, you know, one of the things I want to try and do is to sort of say, well, what is going on in the mind of a non-worrier? Um, a good example might be, you know, when you go down into the London Underground, I bet every single person has had the thought, what if I fell over the edge? Okay. But not everybody is worried about standing within two feet of the edge of the platform. Okay. So the, the key thing is not so much the worrying thought, it's about what you do with it. And that's another take-home message is we need to get beyond the individual worries because we all have individual worries and we need to understand the self-maintaining process of worry. And that's where cognitive behavioral therapy comes in because that's a psychological way of looking at the process that's going on rather than the individual worry, be it your children or, or, or something like that. Okay. So just a few sort of, sort of quotes about this. J. John said, uh, one of the hardest verses in the Bible is do not worry, Matthew 6, 25. We'll, we'll cover that. Corrie ten Boom, lady here who spent time in the concentration camp, said, worry does not remove tomorrow of its sorrows, but removes today of its joy. And I think there's a key point there. Worry is, is not effective on the whole. And we'll come back to that. Um, but it certainly affects the day. Uh, Charlie Brown, this is the best advice on worry. I've got a new approach to worry. I only, wo- I only dread one day at a time. And in actual fact, those of you who know Matthew 5 will know that he's spot on there with Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to that as a practical tip. So good old Charlie Brown, he's right again. Calvin and Hobbes speaking to him. <clears throat> Why do we worry? Worry is normal. I think somebody was saying worry is a normal part of it. Psychologists talk about the big five ocean, the big five types of, 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 of um, personality there that are stable personality, conscientiousness, openness, agreeableness, extroversion, and neuroticism. So neuroticism is a stable, healthy part of human personality. It's evolutionarily stable Forgive me for introducing a controversial topic, but you know what I'm saying. It, it's something which is valued and has been in human society for a long time. Okay? So it's healthy to a certain extent to, to, to worry about things, to think about things. And some people are going to be more towards the neurotic end of the spectrum in the way that some people are more extrovert than introvert. You know, These things are spectrums. Neuroticism is, is healthy and stable. 
neuroticism is also really, really, really Im- Im- important. And this picture here from Band of Brothers just reminds me um, of, you know, I don't know if anyone in this room has got a loved one in Afghanistan, for example, in the forces. I, I don't know if you have. But in those situations, it would be normal to worry about whether that person is, is going to come back. And in those situations, it may well actually be normal to worry a lot, you know, whereas uh, uh, possibly even to the point where it's affecting your health, that, that is normal to a certain extent when you're in that deep kind of personal situation. There are certain things that we ought to worry, and it would be rude of me to say in that situation, stop worrying, pull yourself together. So we need to allow ourselves to worry in the same way we need to allow ourselves to grieve, etc., and not rush these things through. But there are times when actually the need to worry has, has stopped, and, and we need to find ways to try and deal with it. Um, And these things also sort of start very early in our lives. You know, there's often sort of family wisdom sort of passed down, you know, a bit of sort of social lines like, you know, oh, better safe than sorry or a stitch in time saves nine. And some families by nature are more sort of risk averse. Other families are go out there, go for it, you know, go on a gap year, don't phone us, don't write to us, you go and do it. Other families are more risk averse in these sort of family mantras that grow up. So you might be someone who's grown up with these kind of narratives inside your head and they're they're very core and central to your personality. But the main reason why we worry is because we think it helps. And the key reason there is we think it helps. They're, They're maintained. And one of the ways to think about worry and think about the process of worry a little bit is think about driving a car. And many of you are from London, so let's talk about the London rush hour. Now, you are here in your car. You want to get to HTB for the Sunday morning service or even worse, you know, the um, prayer meeting on a, on a Wednesday evening or something. It, it, it's the end of the rush hour and you've got to get to your kind of destination and you've got certain things that you do. So you know that you're a little car, so you can sort of nip your way through. You also know about your, your favourite rat runs that you're going to use and you also know about if I go this way and that way and the other it's actually a lot a shortcut but the problem is it turns out to be a long cut and if anyone who spent any time thinking about the London rush hour you know that generally speaking there are no particularly effective solutions to do it however every single Londoner thinks they know how to navigate the London rush hour that's certainly my experience okay and when we think about worry We think that worry will get us here, will get us there, that we can worry about certain things that, you know, last time I worried, it came to me. After 10 hours of sweat, the magic answer came to me. Therefore, I'm going to worry lots the next time. And these these self-perpetuating beliefs about the value of worry keep it going. But actually, if we're going to understand worry, we kind of need to stand back. And we need to be a bit like a town planner or the person looking at that big screen in the Metropolitan Police Headquarters looking at all the traffic in London and thinking, where are the log jams? Where are the rat runs? Because I guarantee you, the moment one person starts using a rat run, everyone else is going to follow that. And that doesn't become a rat run anymore. It becomes clogged up. So the little tricks and techniques which, because we're perhaps warriors, we start using, over time they get kind of clogged up. We've got to stand back see the big picture of worry and, and, and see where it's going. And that's what I want to try and cover today. And when you're thinking about worry, one, one of the key things that we have to think about are what are my particular themes? So the, the person I wrote the book with, Will van der Hart, was involved in the, in the London bombings. And he was um, on his way to work one day. He was a curate at St. Mary's Branston Square at the time. And he was walking along and all of a sudden there was this kind of bang and smoke down the street and he didn't know what exactly was going on so he sort of ran back to his flat put on his dog collar 
because that somehow made him bulletproof. He wasn't quite sure why. He didn't, doesn't wear a dog collar most of the time, but today was a, a dog collar day, ducked under the cordon and turned up to all these firefighters and policemen running around and said, can I help? And they sort of stared at him a little bit and thought, um, do you have a church hall? So he went, yes, I have a church hall. Here's a church hall. So they all piled into the church hall. Sainsbury's brought turkeys and uh, all kinds of people sort of brought food. And they, they set up this emergency station and they had three or 400 emergency services personnel in there by the end of the lunchtime. And then anyone said, have you got a TV? Because all the radios were down or the phone lines were down. So he dashed home, got his little TV, put it up on the altar. And they had a six inches square TV of BBC News. And all these big burly firemen were sort of peering around this kind of thing. And it was this huge sense of sort of heightened anxiety that went on for the whole day. And then it was kind of calming down at about six o'clock. He left the building and he walked home. And halfway home, he was away from it. He just stopped and threw up in the street. And suddenly the anxiety sort of caught up with him. And that started for him a a sort of long process of spending a period of time on antidepressants, a period of time having cognitive behavioural therapy, really working all of this out. Because although that was the trigger event, he realised that he'd been a lifelong worrier. And there'd been a whole bunch of things kind of sort of in the background that were sort of there that actually he was really, really worried about. And he had a couple of sort of big dreads there in the background. And because he was able to sort of think, well, actually, this is normally the kind of thing that becomes my trigger. He was then able to um, say to a certain extent, oh, that's my worry talking. Okay, if that makes sense. So if you know what your particular threat areas are. And what I'd like you to do again, just in your small groups again, is perhaps just have a discussion. What kinds of things are people worried about? I think someone at the back said, you know, your worries are different to my worries. And and they are. But what are the main sort of groups of things that people worry about? I'm, I'm sure you'll be able to think of three or four of them. And if you can just do that in, in your small groups just now, that'd be, that'd be great. Off you go. Just one minute, okay? So what sort, of, what sort of worry themes have we got over this side of the room? What, what are the sort of things that you think people worry about quite a lot? Yep. The future and, and, and money. And the, the future is a worry because... Right, so sort of something might happen in the future. It's uncertain, etc. Yeah, okay. So any of these things could be current worries or they could be future, future worries. And I think that's a really important distinction, actually, between a current worry and a future worry. We'll come back to that. But I think money is a, is a big one. Yeah, something here. Yeah, at the back. Def- definitely. So, so health, two things there, health and also children. I think that's a biggie. And actually, for Will, his, his sort of worry was my family could have been on that, on that tube train and that would have left me by myself. And actually, you know, that sort of, I could be all by myself was his sort of big, big sort of thing. But yeah, certainly the safety of your children, the health of your children, that kind of thing. Yeah, something here? Right, so yeah. Post-mortem worry, I call it. You know, you get home and you put the video on, you start dissecting. And uh, the more you think, the more you find that you did wrong. That's one of the problems with sort of worry and rumination. You know, worry about the future is worry. Uh, rumination about the past is, is more associated with depression usually, but it, it's certainly there in worry as well. Yeah, just behind. Um, irrational worries or fears like filling in forms. Or <laughs> okay, so sort of like odd, really specific things like form, filling in forms, something like that. Yeah. Any, anything else that are very sort of slightly unusual and specific that we had? Yeah. Right, so things people are saying about me and in the broad category there of sort of relationships and also is this relationship going to last, worries like that, 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 that kind of thing. Yeah. 
Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes, worries about faith. You know, have I read God's will for my life right? That kind of thing. And of course, being a Christian is great, and it brings a whole load of extra worries. If, if we sell Christianity in that sort of you-can-get-it-right-and-you-can-get-it-wrong kind of way, and I don't think most pastors mean to do that, but sometimes that can happen unconsciously or deliberately, or sometimes the person can hear it that way. So definitely the sort of worries about, you know, am I doing my faith right? And those are sort of extra things for Christians. So, so money, relationships, health, and, and faith are, are big kind of things to worry about. And there is a spectrum of worry. So, I mean, hopefully the person with a sort of form-filling in worry, that's something that might affect you once every few weeks, few months, something like that. And hopefully it's manageable in the same way that being scared of wasps is manageable. You just get someone else to kill the wasp. Um, but Or pray for heaven. Because wasps are fallen bees, aren't they? So we, we, <laughs> we pray for heaven. But... But joking apart, certain worries are sporadic, but there is a spectrum. And psychiatrists talk about something called generalized anxiety disorder, which is the best way to think about it is where worry is taking up several hours a day. In the same way that obsessional checking, you know, we all occasionally have checked that the front door is locked. But when your checking is taking up several hours a day, that, 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 that's called OCD or obsessive compulsive disorder. But, but specifically, it's, it's an excessive out-of-proportion worry or perhaps above the normal level of worry in a particular situation that the person finds it difficult to control. And this feeling that worry is going to go out of control. And that's why a lot of people worry because they, they worry about worry because they're trying to keep their worry under control. And they worry that if they stop paying attention to it, you know, and they'll be, I don't know, naked or something, you know. I mean, there are all kinds of sort of what on earth could happen at some point in the future, if I don't try and keep this under control. So there's, there's some sort of crazy kind of worries like that, ultimately. But actually, people have very serious sort of what-ifs and if that, and then it all very much spirals out of control. So they try and keep it in control. But of course, the future is unknowable, uncertain, so that that's not possible. Not confined to a particular tendency. So although we might have worry themes... And certainly knowing your worry theme is probably quite useful. If you're a health worrier, then you probably just need to keep account with somebody about, you know, not going to the GP too many times or something like that. But actually, you know, the rest of your life might be more under control. So you can sort of say, that is my worry speaking. But people with generalized anxiety disorder have got worries in in multiple themes or or very severely. Um, Begins to affect the body as well. So restlessness, fatigue, difficulty concentrating irritability, muscular tension, tension headaches, sleep disturbance, and it causes you know, significant distress. This has now begun to affect your life. This has stopped you getting the promotion that you would have gone for. This has stopped you having that relationship that you wanted to have, etc. It's beginning to impact your life, and that's when worry becomes significant, and you know, the, 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 the two main treatments of that are around cognitive behavioral therapy and antidepressants. I'm not going to say any more about antidepressants today. I'll talk about that a little bit tomorrow. But those would be the two main secular treatments that would be recommended. My view is that both of those are okay okay for Christians as well. But we'll talk more about that tomorrow if you're worried about that. (laughs) It just slips in, doesn't it? It just slips in. So worry does affect the body. And 
I said, I can't teach too many techniques. I've only got an hour, but I think, you know, learning to control your breathing is really important. And we've got two or three pages in the book on controlling your breathing. Most people who worry will chronically hyperventilate. It's be quite interesting, perhaps, to get your flatmate or a founding member to measure your breathing rate. And if you're a worrier, your breathing rate will probably be up 20, 25 breaths per minute, all right? The correct breathing weight, rate which means that you retain a small amount of carbon dioxide is around about 12 to 15 breaths per minute. So get someone to measure your breathing rate next time you're watching Neighbours or something like that, or Home and Away it is now, isn't it? But, you know, next time you're doing that, and just get them to measure it. So 15 breaths per minute and learn a breathing control technique. The other thing that's really, really important is sleep. And it's that sort of waking in the middle of the night, staring at the ceiling kind of, should I get up? Should I stay in bed? You need to have some answers to those questions. Um, the, the short answer is get up, okay? Um, don't, don't lie. The bedroom is for two things only, sleep and something else. Um, it's, it's not for lying awake, staring at the ceiling. So you need to have some, some good techniques for, for managing sleep. It, it starts with getting up at the right time in the morning, actually, rather than start with getting up in the morning, and then you will be tired uh, come the evening. But some techniques to manage sleep, and we've got some good sections on that. Now, what happens in the brain? And I'm just going to give you a couple of sort of brain models of worry. One or other of these will probably click with you. This is, this is one of the common ones that's used in, in cognitive behavioral therapy. And the one on the next slide is about the worry pendulum, which, which are, is also used quite a lot as well. And one of the things that people talk about, psychologists talk about, is what's called the vicious flower. So imagine I'm sort of the, the, the stalk of a flower, and the worry starts with some kind of trigger. So perhaps I have a concerning phone call or something like that. And before that, I wasn't worrying particularly. So I have a concerning phone call, and I can feel the worry beginning to rise in me. So I sort of dampen it down, and I try not to worry. That's my first response, is to try not to worry. But actually, after trying not to worry for a bit, eventually there'll be an intrusive thought that breaks through that and it'll take you off on the first petal. And the first petal sort of comes out here. Imagine I'm like a sort of daisy or something like that. The first petal could be, does that mean that so-and-so doesn't like me or something? And you go worrying on the first petal. You pursue that towards its logical conclusion. It becomes terrifying and you go, no, 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 don't be so silly. Pull yourself together. And you come back to that middle point of trying not to worry. And that goes on for a, a few minutes, a few hours maybe. And then the next petal is generated. And eventually this vicious flower is, is, is kind of drawn out with each petal being a successive worry. And the important thing is that you never really pursue the worries to the logical conclusion because it's too scary. You know, they, they, that might mean I have no friends or whatever it is. But likewise, you never really relax in the middle. You're sort of holding yourself at that sort of 5% tense kind of level. And I think this is a big characteristic of people who worry, is that whilst it's not obvious, neither are they relaxed. It's at that sort of 5% worry level. Yeah, the odd panic attack, but probably not, because actually they stop themselves from fully going into panic and try and suppress it. But suppression doesn't work, so it swings up again. And that sort of leads into the, into the second kind of thing. Just a, a worry about that, you know, the importance of the flower analogy about trying to at some point getting worry out by the root. Um, you know, where do these kind of worries come from? Thinking about your worry themes, where do they come from? If you can do that, that that's probably quite important. And the idea, the other idea is about the pendulum. So, you know, you might have a worrying thought and you, you sort of swing across and you're getting more and more and more anxious as you swing across this, this side of the stage. And 
it's really getting quite unpleasant at this point. You know, if I carry on with this train of thought, I'm going to be thinking, you know, it's logical perhaps to even be thinking about taking my life, moving away, escaping, running. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to come back over here. I'm going to tell myself to pull myself together and um, don't think about it. Be logical. Come on, sunshine. You know, you've got Jesus, haven't you? What's the problem? You, you, you try and suppress the worry. And of course, that doesn't work for a while. And people swing. And they swing logically. I'll put some pictures up. These two chaps, Mr. Spock. And I think sometimes we want to be Mr. Spock. We want to be cold, calm, logical, etc. Whereas actually that is not possible for most of us, particularly if we've got a good healthy dose of neuroticism. It's not possible. So if you try and be that, and if you've seen people who seem to be like that, first of all, you haven't seen the real them. And secondly, they don't exist because they're all Vulcan. And Vulcan's not a real planet. Okay. <laughs> So we, we try to be Mr. Spock, but actually Mr. Spock is not a very... Mr. Spock always makes the wrong decisions in the films. It's Captain Kirk who saves the day, isn't it? Logic leads you to the wrong place, and actually it's impossible because life is uncertain. Logic can't predict stuff to 84% predictability. So lo- you try to be Spock and you fail. And at the other end, you, you perhaps try to be sort of, you know, Clive Dunn going, don't panic, don't panic, like this, and sort of, you know, you're, you're in this sort of saying you're not panic, but you're running around like the proverbial headless chicken and swinging between these two, you know, realizing that you're turning into, into Clive Dunn or you're turning into Mr. Spock and life is sort of lived on this sort of oscillating roller coaster of worry, very much being at the mercy of the emotions. And the midpoint there is the interesting bit, because that's where we want to be, is in the middle, neither not worrying nor not panicking and tolerating uncertainty. That's kind of where we want to try and be, and that, that, that's the heart of both the spiritual approach to worry and the cognitive behavioral approach in the middle, is to learn to tolerate anxiety. It's called the faith, the Christian faith, not the Christian obvious. We've got to sort of actually work out what that looks like, okay? So here's some examples on, on the worry pendulum. You know, um, you're trying not to worry. My little boy might be struggling at school, but I've been told he's fine, so I'll try not to worry. Everything will be okay. Take some deep breaths. <gasps> like this. And, you know, you're trying to be the sane, calm mum. But at the other end of the spectrum, he might be being bullied, or he might have dyslexia, or he could be abused. Oh, no, that's terrible. I find myself starting to panic, and you go to the other end of the spectrum, and you're, you're, you're panicking and panicking and panicking. And actually what you've got to try and do is trust, really, and in, in that, but because you're a worrier, it's quite hard to do that. Non-worriers seem to have an ability just to trust that little Jimmy's going to be okay at school and to ride with that uncertainty. Non-worriers can't because stuff's driving the pendulum to and fro. Um, another one, um, it's that time of year when people are being made redundant, but I'll probably be okay. I need this job. I really have to pray really hard. Phew, thank heavens, now I've prayed hard. Now it's up to God. So that's the sort of Christian try not to worry approach, give it all to God, which is not a particularly helpful technique in worry. And that's why I'm saying be specific in your prayers. Don't pray, Lord, take it all away, because actually that's avoidance. Um, at the other end of the spectrum, if I lose my job, I could lose my house. My spouse might not stay with me. I might never see my children again. My life is over and there's no going back. So complete catastrophizing at the other end of the spectrum. And you, you sort of swing between these, I've given it all to God to, I don't really trust him and I'm going to try and manage it myself. And you're sort of swinging between the two. And the third model, um, I just mentioned, because I think it's quite useful. This is worry about worry. Some people who worry will recognize these thoughts. They will have worries about their worry. They will have thoughts about their thoughts. They will have feelings about their feelings. So they'll say things like, if I worry too much or if I stop worrying, 
things will get out of control. I don't know if you identify with that. Um, if I worry too much, or I will be unable to think. So I'm, I'm towards the panicky end, and I better stop worrying, otherwise my brain is, is, is going to melt. You know, worry is something that somehow has to be controlled. A bit like hyperventilating, you know, try to control your breathing, try to control your breathing. Well, you know, if you talk to a psychologist, they'll say, don't worry about it. The worst that's going to happen is you faint. Okay, but people who hyperventilate try and control their breathing, and that actually sort of sort of makes it worse. Um, or um, if I worry too much, I'll be condemned to a life of anxiety. I am weak. Others will think of me at weak. Or if I worry too much, it means I lack confidence. And there's other ends of the spectrum. If I don't worry enough, then life will be out of control. If I don't worry enough, things will go wrong, etc. So, so a lot of people have worries about their worry. And suffice to say, I find that a bit of a complicated model. However, the degree to which you worry about your worry is proportional to the severity of your worry. So people with generalized anxiety disorder will worry an awful lot about their worry. And that's a natural thing to do, isn't it? If you've got a worry problem, you're probably going to worry about it. You might even come to a seminar like this, okay? Um, <laughs> but, you know, the, the extent... It, Actually, it, it almost kind of makes it worse, if that makes sense. So you should all go to the beach. Uh, no, but I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm joking. But the, the extent to which you worry about your worry and try to control and try to manage the mischief and all that kind of stuff is actually what keeps worry going. So, so what fuels our worries? What sorts of things fuel the worry pendulum? And this is, this is our um, other emotional desert um, here, who is our sort of modern-day Mr. Spock. And he's driven by all of these core worry rules. We call them core worry rules. And if you talk to worriers, one of the things as a cognitive therapist, when I'm talking to people and listening to people, I'm always listening out for these kinds of words. So um, shoulds, musts, oughts. Um, I should be able to do this more easily. I must not show any emotion. I ought to do a good job, stiff up a lip, etc. Um, things never work out for me. Things always go wrong um if thens are good if if i have lots of friends then i will be happy now that to a certain extent is true if however you find yourself in a new town or city with no friends that worry rule that made you gregarious comes around and bites you on the bottom and you become depressed you follow me the, the, the these rules drive the swinging of the pendulum and i suppose the question is are these worry rules a good idea or a bad idea? I mean, they serve James Bond to a certain extent. Um, should, must, and oughts enable us to achieve great things in life? And a lot of people value these worry rules because they think it sounds like a good idea. And if you think back to the time when we thought that the world was flat, it seemed like a good idea not to sail too near the edge because you would fall off. Voyage of the Dawn Treader hasn't done a lot for... None of find that theory, has it? But um, <laughs> the Earth is round, okay? If you've seen the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, the Earth is actually round. And what happens when you sail towards the edge of the world is you discover America. And all kinds of interesting things follow on from there. But um, these, the flat Earth theory seemed to be protective, but in actual fact, it was restrictive. And worry rules seem to be protective, seem to be motivating, and they are motivating in certain situations, but so is guilt a motivator in certain situations, et cetera, et cetera. Okay, so, so my point is we need to challenge and start breaking some of these worry rules. We also need to challenge and start breaking what I call the golden worry rules. And the golden worry rules are the things that are really sacred in the heart of the worrier. Um, here we are, the saying again, um, 
that's the secret to life, replace one worry with another. And I think, you know, somebody was saying at the back, why do we always seem to be worrying? You know, it's almost important to have a worry on the go. It's almost trendy to have a worry on the go. And, um, you know, I think to be free from worry could be quite scary from, for some people who've always worried, always tried to be in control of their emotions. But actually, these are the things we need to break. And a lot of people who worry have overly positive beliefs about worry. They hold on to it. It's their... It's their comforter, if that makes sense. They believe things like worry aids problem solving. Yeah, occasionally. I'm sure if you have a good worry, you do have a good idea. But generally speaking, worry damages concentration and problem solving. But worriers don't believe that. They remember the time it worked. Uh, Worrying helps motivate me. Worrying prevents things from going wrong. Worrying makes for nicer people. Well, it does because neurotic, slightly depressed, slightly anxious people are often very sensitive and can be quite good listeners and quite good friends. So there's an element of truth in that, but it's pretty unpleasant for them. And a really you know, big one here, worry protects me from difficult emotions if things go wrong, because at least I worried about it, and at least I did everything I could. If you're a worrier, do you see some of these things? I hope I'm not sort of doing too much mind reading here, but, but some of these things will, will be familiar to you, too familiar to you. And I think we need to try and see worry for, for what it is. And I, I've put there underneath an addiction. And I, I'm being slightly harsh there because I think to say that worry is the same as an alcohol addiction might be a big jump. But actually, if you have lots of positive beliefs about alcohol, like, for example, it helps me be sociable, uh, it numbs my pain, etc., 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 you will be unlikely to deal with your alcohol problem. And lots of people who have worries, it's maintained by a positive belief about the value of worry, about that style of thinking. And we've got to blow that out of the water and say... Occasionally, yes, but generally speaking, it's holding you in its snare, and we've, we've got to try and see it for what it is. So um, I'm going to skip that and carry on if that's okay, because I think I just want to try and get, get through this before the end of the seminar. But do have a think about those. You know, Which of those have you seen in yourself or others? Which of those might you be able to start breaking? And I think at this point it is impos- important to offer a word of compassion, because I think um, – sorry, yeah – I, I'm aware you can't see the screen. I, there's not a lot I can do about that. I can barely see it from where I am, I'm afraid. Um, I think what I'd say is I can make the slides available. They're going to be on the Mind and Soul website later. I'm, I'm saying everything on them as well. So sorry if you can't see the screen from, from where you are. But it, it is important to try and have a word of compassion for yourself because I think one of the difficulties with cognitive behavioral therapy is it can be right but not particularly compassionate. Okay, so, so I think when I'm talking about some of these worry rules, you might see them as rather too personal, rather too pertinent for you. They might be rather too close to the bone or too close to the bone for people who you know. And I, th- I think I just offer a, a bit of a word of compassion, which is that it may be that you got into cyclical behavior patterns and began to think in a worrying kind of way. But actually, that might not be your fault because it could have been that you're in a difficult or abusive or stressful situation at that time. So you are still the only person who can change it. But actually, if, if I was in that situation, I, I could have ended up with a serious worry problem as well. My, my colleague, Will, didn't think of himself as a person with a mental health problem until he was exposed to a fairly serious trauma. He was a sort of rough, tough, rugby-playing kind of guy. So, um, you know, th- these, these things, there is really important to have a word of compassion. And also, you know, they grew up over time they're going to take time to unwind. They're going to take time to try to get to the bottom of and, and, and piece apart. 
And also, you know, when you are thinking about yourself and thinking about how you're going to break your core worry rules, don't forget the core worry rules. Don't start saying things like, I must go home from this seminar and try really hard tonight, okay? Because all that you're doing then is you're giving yourself a good beating using one of the core worry rules that I've suggested perhaps you want to start breaking. So one of the things you might want to do after this seminar is go home and do nothing and enjoy the rest of home focus, okay? Because I think that would challenge quite an important worry rule for quite a lot of people. You can always pick it up at some point in the future. But in terms of breaking the rules, again, this is a process. It does require structure. There's some stuff in the book about how you go about breaking rules. But it's actually not rocket science. You know, when you see a rule like sort of keep off the grass, it, 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 it makes sense to a certain extent. But there's lots and lots of lawns in the Cambridge colleges. You don't need to keep off all of them. The fellows are keeping them for themselves, aren't they? So, so you know, what I say is write down your worry rules. Write down that, you know, I must always succeed in my work. Really? It's an interesting rule for life, you know. What happens if that doesn't work? You know, write it down, see it in black and white. Do you actually believe that or are you unconsciously following that? Um, examine the logic of it. You know, why did you start doing that? Is, is that sustainable? What happens if there's um, a ca- nuclear catastrophe? What happens to your job then? You know, are you actually totally responsible for your destiny? Are you the person who can keep you in a job for the rest of your life? Probably not. Um, Challenge some of the benefits to it. Well, yes, you know, you might always have a job, but it might cost you your mental and your emotional health if you keep living according to that rule. So, and then maybe gently just start taking small risks. Maybe start off with something like just walking on the very edge of the lawn when no one's looking. Um, but then, you know, or start off by not going home and trying really, really hard after the seminar and just not working on yourself, improving yourself for a little bit, just, just enjoying the rest of home focus, okay? Um, start breaking some of those rules slowly and gently. And I'm just going to just finish off a little bit talking about sort of faith and worry and, and, and coming to Matthew 5. And this is one of the letters that, that, that we sort of get fairly often at Mind and Soul. I'll, I'll just read it out. I wonder if you could ask me a question. Ask, I wonder if I could ask a question about someone that's been bothering me regarding what some Christians have said to me. I've had a lot of Christians come up to me and say things like, God doesn't want us to be in anxiety. He created us for freedom. Or the Bible says, do not be anxious over anything. Or even better, if we're not living in joy, it's because we aren't resting in the Father's arms and accepting his fatherhood over us. I've really struggled with some of these comments which have either been preached or passed my way during my illness. I've known the loving arms of God as my father for many years, and yet I feel as though I've had this illness and it's led me to feelings of guilt sometimes. I know that isn't right either, but I just feel uncomfortable with what some people are saying, and I don't believe it's all as simple as they're preaching. What is the correct response as a Christian to these comments I've received? We get lots and lots and lots of, of, of comments like that. We've um, Some of them from people who, are, who you will have heard speaking and, and, and preaching in, in, in pulpits who actually struggle with this significantly. And, you know, that what's happened is that a simple Bible verse has been sort of passed their way. And I think one of the things I want to try and suggest is when you, when you get fed a simple Bible verse like that, it's just to sort of stand back, have a look at it in context. And Matthew 5 is, is one of the sort of classic um, passages about worry. And I wonder if we've just got a few minutes, if, you could, if you've got your Bibles, have a little bit of a look at Matthew chapter 5. So Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. And can you read not just verse 25, which is the famous verse, But can you read right the way through to the end of the section, verse 34? Okay. So have a little look at that in your Bibles. 
It's Matthew 5 verses, Matthew 6 verses 25 to 34. This picture, by the way, on the screen, if you can see it, is how not to do it. That's from a church sermon series I found on the internet. We don't believe that, the sin of worry. Okay, not good. Okay, what I want to do is just sort of finish. We, we haven't got time to, to get through the whole content of the book, so I'm going to sort of finish, finish halfway through, and I, I figure we'll probably end up finishing halfway through, but there's, there's lots more in terms of practical tips, practical techniques, but I'm, I'm going to sort of deal with the most important thing at the beginning and just do a very, very, very quick Bible study of this passage in Matthew and just illustrate a, a couple of, of, of really important things, the f- most important thing you need to know that's going to help you deal with worry. And what it says is this. So this, this is the sort of Matthew passage. Now, I've just sort of popped it up there. You've, you've probably got it in front of you, but it starts off, therefore, I tell you, don't worry. And then it talks about the birds of the air. And then it talks about the um, clothes and the lilies of the fields and which of you can do that. And then it ends up with this OU of little faith, dot, dot, dot. And that makes you feel like zero small, doesn't it? Um, and then it goes on and says, so do not worry about anything for the pagans run after these things and your heavenly father knows you need them. But seek verse his kingdom and his righteousness. All these things will be given to you as well. Therefore, do not worry about tomorrow for tomorrow will worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Or I think in the authorized version, it's a, each day has its own trouble of therein. Or one of those, it's one of those wonderful phrases in the authorized version that, you know, it's just a phrase that jumps out. And that's where we kind of got to start. And if you're doing a Bible study, the first thing I suppose is to sort of start off and think how this verse has been misinterpreted. And it, it says, um, you know, therefore do not worry about your life. And that, that, that's, that's translated in the authorized version as give no thought to your life. And I think one of the problems with give no thought to your life is it leads to the sort of, you know, park your brain at the door view of Christianity. You know, all you need is more prayer, more healing, etc. No, in actual fact, that's not what Jesus is saying. What he's saying is do not worry spin, churn, stew about your life, etc. He's not saying give no thought to your life. So it's okay to critically examine your life. And sometimes that verse is preached, all you need is more of Jesus, stop worrying. And actually that's not a particularly helpful balance. The second thing he's talking about is, is this sort of stuff about, um, you know, the birds of the air and the lilies of the field and that kind of stuff. And I suppose we sort of need to think back to what Jesus was saying in his original audience. What you've got is Jesus' teaching in the fields outside of Jerusalem, up, up the Sermon on the Mount. Most people have probably come for the day. And we know that Jesus can feed the 5,000. We know that he can do that. So, so actually, these verses are, are quite offensive on first reading to Ethiopian Christians, for example, who jolly well should worry about where the next meal is coming from. Or people who don't have um, clothes, literally. And they, they haven't got like one or two garments between the entire family. So, so clearly, Jesus is not saying... Never give any thought to where your next meal is coming from. Never give any thought to where your clothes are coming from. What he is suggesting is to people who are on a day trip out from Jerusalem that perhaps there are some thumb things that they're worrying about that they don't need to worry about. Does that make sense? So none of these things say, don't ever, don't, you know, never have a pension. You know, I mean, th- this verse is not saying never have a pension, don't do any financial planning. What it's saying is, Plan financially according to the circumstances that you're in and worry according to the circumstances that you're in. 
And then I think the verse starts getting difficult. The passage starts getting difficult. And a really good tip if you've got a difficult passage is if you can't get in the front of the passage, go in at the other end of the passage. And what Jesus says is this. He says, If, therefore, do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow worry about itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And actually, Jesus here is bang on with where modern cognitive therapy is about worry. The first thing that a psychologist will do is help you try to work out whether or not a worry is about a solvable problem or about some floating theoretical possibly sort of what-if kind of problem. And a good test is, can it be done today? Is there something I need to do today about this? Like, for example, um, I've lost my wallet somewhere at home focus. Do I need to cancel my credit cards? Yes. Okay, that, that is a today worry, all right? The, the sort of, uh, will I have a job in 10 years' time is, is a future worry. So we need to sort of work out whether it's a solvable worry or a floating worry. And Jesus says, deal with the first ones. That's, that's where you've got to start. There's enough worry here today to keep you busy. It's the second ones that don't worry about those for the time being. But, of course, we all know that don't worry and try not to worry is really, really useless, um, useless advice. So Jesus gives us some great advice here. He says the next thing is seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all of these things will be given to you as well. Not like the prosperity preachers. Don't pray for the things. Don't pray for the financial security. Don't pray for the, um, you know, the, the, the rent money to come in. Jesus doesn't say that. He says, seek first the kingdom of God and all of these things will be added unto you second. And that's how you begin to think about dealing with floating, future-orientated worry because there's nothing you can do about them. They're too far in the future. They're not solvable problems. And Jesus doesn't say, pray for an answer to those future problems. Oh, Lord, always give me a job. He doesn't say that. What he says is, he says, seek first the kingdom of God. So today worry, you do something about it. Future worry... You don't do something about it, but you do something else instead, which is to seek the kingdom of God. Okay? And you're reassured because you know, you trust, uncertain, faith-based trust, as certain as you can be this side of heaven, that God knows that you need those things, and somehow in his provision, he has that base covered. And we don't know exactly what that means to people who don't see uh, food on their plate. But we, we know that God knows that we need them. We're not like the pagans that run after these things. That verse is translated in lots of different ways. Sometimes it's chase, sometimes it's fret, sometimes it's stew, churn, etc. Here it's translated run. And the difference there is looking at the process of worry and thinking about with these future uncertain things, is my worry running after these things, or is that a time to bring in faith? And then the last little thing here, just right in the middle, he says, oh, you of little faith, to the first crowd. But actually, if we approach that difficult verse from the sort of upside, from the bottom end, it, it, it says, oh, you of little faith, may you grow in faith. And certainly my experience of Jesus' teaching is that he doesn't smack you with torpedoes between the eyes and smack you down unless you're a Pharisee. Okay, so he's not addressing the Pharisees, he's addressing, addressing the disciples here. He's not giving you that little verse to say, stupid you, have more faith. He's not doing that. He's, he's almost worryingly saying, oh you of little faith, that you may grow in faith, that you may be encouraged. And I think if we can do Matthew 5 like that, if we can say at the beginning, worries in proportion, then come round to the end, work out if it's a today worry or a tomorrow worry. If it's a tomorrow worry, seek verse God's kingdom. Trust that God knows where we are going. Then our faith will grow. 
Not that our faith is weak at the moment, because some very strong Christians worry, but our faith in trust about our worries will grow, and then we'll be in a position where we can more easily tolerate uncertainty. Now, that is the world's quickest Bible study on a difficult passage in Matthew 6. Personally, I think the colors add up quite nicely together, and I'm, I'm not meaning to be smug about it, but that, I think, is a comprehensive analysis of Matthew chapter 6, where you can say, that actually empowers me as a warrior. That gives me answers as a warrior. And it helps me think, for example, what are these two types of worry? What is solvable worry? And I'm just going to finish on this, that there's a solution now or in the near future. I ring up about my credit cards and I report them to the bank, for example. And we need to stop worrying in that situation and start doing something. So worry is replaced with doing. It's replaced with action. And the problem with worry, I said at the beginning, it feels like work. But it's not work, because there's no associated action. It's just inner adrenaline. We replace that with actual physical action by doing something about the problem. We talk about a technique called problem solving in the book that will take you through that in a structured way. The other thing is to think about worries that are to do with tomorrow, which are floating worries. There is no real solution. Even if there is, it's years in the future. We might do a bit of forward planning. We might maybe think about doing some studying to improve our chances of getting a job. But it's too far in advance for us to control. There's nothing that can be done. So we can't replace our worry with doing. But what we can do is replace our worrying with this focus on God. And one of the things that we introduce in the book is a technique called present contemplation or, or thinking in a contemplative manner about God. And essentially, it ties back to what I was saying earlier. It's, it's about saying, seek first the kingdom of God and these things will be added to you later. When you're seeking God about future uncertain worries, you do not seek an answer to that worry Because A, there isn't one. B, I'm not particularly sure God wants to give you one. Because what he actually wants you to do is to focus on him and and learn from him and practice contemplation. It will take probably some years to learn to experience God in a contemplative way if in the past you've always experienced God in a goal-orientated way. But that ultimately is, is, is the answer to worry. And we spend probably at least the second half of the book sort of dealing with that and unpacking that. And I, I haven't got time to go through that today. So I'm just going to hand back to Mary Claire, wherever she is. And we've probably got time for one or two questions. Thank you very much. Thank you so much. Thank you, Rob. Now, are there any questions? Oh, lots. Um, <laughs> What is the um, relationship, if any, between worry and panicking and, say, depression or addiction? Okay, I mean, as I was hinting at earlier, there's a lot of similarities between, you know, why people do certain things. Ultimately, perhaps it's because we think it brings us some kind of benefit. Um, Rumination in depression would perhaps be the equivalent of worry in anxiety. I tend to think of panic attacks as being the specific peak of panic. You know, you are about to abseil, you have a panic attack. Um, the, the worry is more the sort of grumbling 5-10% kind of sort of level. But the, the things that keep the pendulum swinging in, um, in, in, in anxiety are the same that keep the pendulum of depression swinging in terms of rumination, the same thing that keep the um, pendulum swinging in addictions, you know, can I manage just a little bit? No, I need to stay right away from it. A lot of these forces are the same, and I think once you can kind of grab the, the concept, there are some similarities. Yes. 
thank you for the talk. Um, I have a friend who worries, has tomorrow worries constantly, and it's difficult to say to him, seek first the kingdom of God, because he says, well, I worry it's a remnant of my Catholic upbringing. And I don't really know what to sort of say to him about that, because I can't really keep telling him to seek first the kingdom when he, when he won't, really. So... Yeah, I mean, the, the, the technique that we talk about in the book of, of, of present contemplation is, is something which is shared between a lot of faiths and um, has some similarities. You know, the, the Buddhists might call it a mindfulness-based approach. Um, secular psychologists would call it um, um, ACT, acceptance and commitment therapy, or a mindfulness-based approach. I think, you know, personally, historically, I think the Christians were there quite a long way ahead of other people with the early church fathers and um, Celtic Christianity and that sort of stuff. But if, if you can't bring specifically Christian aspects into it, it's not just focusing on God. It's also focusing on our relationship with God and also our relationship with the thought. So a lot of warriors are very quick to push the thought from our mind, their minds. And actually, it's the quick pushing that stops us from actually looking at that thought. And people often say things like, I can't get that worry out of my mind. Whereas actually what's true is they can't get the worry into their mind to, for long enough to examine it, to deal with it. Because the moment it pops into their mind, they push it away. So, so the equivalent for someone who's not a Christian would be to have a contemplative approach to, and that's why it's called contemplation, present contemplation, not jumpy-jumpy worship, which is another expression of Christianity. It is, a, it is a more quiet approach to it. And, you know, there are non-Christian parallels there, which is to examine that thought in a, in a critical and non-judgment manner and not push it away, even though your morals might suggest that, that is an awful thought to have. Probably your morals are not doing you a service at that point. What you need to do is, if you can, postpone the morals for about 30 seconds and actually look at it and maybe deal with the thought, whereas your morals maybe are pushing it out of your mind straight away. And that's probably not doing you a service because it's just maintaining the swing of the pendulum. We're not talking about accepting the thought for the rest of your life. We're talking about examining it and contemplating it long enough to deal with it and hence be free of it and hence more moral than the person who is constantly struggling with immoral, intrusive thoughts. I have one more question. Thank you. Um, I was just thinking about the, the solvable problems which can be solved by action. Um, warriors are not tremendously great decision makers. What do you say to the kind of the agony of indecision? <gasps> Should I visit my gran? Shall I go and talk to my sister? You know, that's a frivolous, a stupid example. But, you know, oh, I don't know which of the possible actions to take. I think that's what I said, you know, right at the beginning, dealing with warriors about getting specific. You know, it can be like wading through treacle and actually getting really specific about it. I mean, in the book, we, we, we talk about a technique called problem-solving therapy, which is, a, you know, seven steps to solve any, quote, solvable, unquote, problem. And, you know, I think being quite specific about it, you know, working out what the problem is, brainstorming solutions, picking a solution, looking for potential barriers, putting it into practice, seeing how it went, reflecting on it later and thinking, oh, do you know what? I feel a heck of a lot better after visiting my aunt. I've thought about it for nine years. Um, now I've done it. That was great. You know, I mean, silly example, but you know, get specific, start small, use a strategy, have a coach, be it a friend or a therapist, you know, and, and start doing things. At some point it has to start with something really small, um, but, you know, using a structured technique like problem-solving problem, problem solving therapy will probably get you started, whereas, as you say, if you just sort of wait for the moment to strike, you could be waiting for a long time. I 
think we probably have to stop, but I just recommend the book is in the bookshop, the Worry book. Um, we are incredibly blessed because Rob is staying and is speaking tomorrow on mental health, spirituality, and the church, which I think will affect all of us. Um, and meanwhile, I think we need to go to the beach. <laughs> Thank you very much. <laughs>